We are going to be taking communion today, so if you have not received one of these uh, cups and wafers, please raise your hand. Our ushers are at the back. They would love to get one into your hand so that you can take part of that with us. Uh, Parents, I'll let you uh, take the leadership there with your kids if you want to give them one as well, but please make sure you have one. We'll be uh, doing that a little bit later in the service. My name is Joel, and I'm excited to get to share with you today. Um, Question before we begin, who's your ride or die? Another one, in other words, who's the person who really gets you? Who's the person that you go on crazy adventures with? Who's the person that you talk to the most, that you share your hopes and your dreams, your successes and your failures with? Who do you laugh and cry with? Who do you pray for, encourage, support, Who do you lovingly correct in your life? Who is your ride or die? Who is it that you just love spending time with? For me, it's my friend Tim. My friend uh, Tim and I met back in 1995. I was a freshman in college, and we arrived at the same college at the same time, uh, except he got the job that I was promised and not me. Uh, I was promised a job to be an athletic trainer with the students, and I got there only to discover Tim had got the job instead of me. Not happy. I was a little bit frustrated, a little bit bitter, a little resentful, uh, made for a little bit of tension in the training room, if you were, a little bit of a challenge. But the more that we spent time together, the more that we started to grow in our relationship, the more that we got to know one another, the more that we started to build something. So much so that when we finished out our freshman year, we were actually friends. Starting our sophomore year, we were roommates. And also, we served together in ministry. And also, we did every single thing together. For the next two years, there was hardly ever a time that Tim and I were apart, except for one summer when we were doing our internships. Even after college, we both moved out to California uh, to get our degrees, our master's degree. Uh, We both decided to go to California because we wanted a degree and a California girl. Uh, I won that battle. He left before he could. But that's, that was my friend Tim, and we spent so much time together. It's been 28 years of friendship uh, that we've experienced, and that's incredible. No Though times have changed and our relationship, our friendship has kind of adjusted over time with life events and families and distance, that same connection is still there. The same camaraderie that we have is still there. And I bring that up to you because inside of each and every one of us, there is this desire for connection, for companionship, for relationship. Each of us have this desire, whether that's in friendship or in marriage, and that's because Intrinsic to us is a desire for connection, for companionship. But what I feel and what I believe and what is true is that it points to a need that's so much deeper than a connection with friends or with a spouse. You see, it points to the deepest need that we have, and that is connection to and fellowship with the God who created us. Blaise Pascal, he was a 17th century uh, century mathematician, philosopher, scientist, and theologian. He captured this idea best when he said, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the creator 
made known to us through Jesus Christ. We were created for fellowship with God. And the most incredible thing about that fellowship with God is that it is the most satisfying thing in the universe. David says in Psalm 16, verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The theme of God dwelling with us and us having fellowship with God and us spending time with him and connecting to him is the theme, the theme that stretches all the way through from Genesis to Revelation, from the beginning of time to the end of time. It's like that golden uh, vein that runs through all of history. We were created to have this intimate, close fellowship with God. That theme of, of walking, that's where we get that from. You make known to me the path of life. It assumes that this life is a walk, that we are walking with God in some capacity or another. And as we walk with God, we get to experience the presence of God. And as we experience the presence of God, we get to understand fullness of joy. And in his presence, we'll find the pleasures never end. They're forevermore. If I could say it a little bit, uh, more briefly or succinctly, it would be this. And it's the big idea for this morning. There is fullness of joy in walking with God both now and forever. There is fullness of joy in walking with God both now and forever. Today we're going to take a walk through Scripture and we're going to discover the story of the walk. It's going to be a rather brisk and brief walk but we're going to try to do our best to get through. But I want you to discover that there is something greater that we are created for. And we're going to see that that is walking with God, personally, physically, eternally. But something changed in that walk, so we need to discover what is that walk now? How did it change and why? And what will it be like in the future? Would you join me in a quick word of prayer? God, we ask that you would minister to us today that you would open our eyes to see the truth displayed in your word, that we would understand what fellowship is with you, why it's so important to walk with you, and the joy and the reward of doing so. Give us your eyes to see, apply it to our heart, and may it transfer to the way that we live, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. First thing that we see in the walk is walking with God in the garden. That's where we first understand how the walk started. Now, this is absolutely, completely amazing to me because the God of the universe is completely and unchangeably perfect. He needs nothing and needs no one. There's nothing in his life, in his existence that he craves. He has it all. So when he goes to create human beings, he doesn't do so out of need. He does so out of a desire, out of a want. He wanted to create human beings. So he created a perfect man and woman and put them in a perfect garden in the midst of a perfect place that is in the perfect world he created, that is in the midst of a perfect universe that he has made. And there, in that perfection, he walks with the people that he created, physically walks with the people that are there. Why? Because there's nothing that would prevent it. There's nothing hindering the perfect relationship with God. We get that from Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. Now, you might 
see as we read this verse that it's referring to the fall. It's referring to the time when Adam, Adam and Eve sinned. But I want you to hear it, and we'll talk about it for a second to see what it's inferring. Genesis 3, 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And we can't be completely certain because there's no definitive proof that this happened over and over. But in my mind, I find it hard to believe that this would be the first time that God would come down to walk among the garden among his people after they had sinned. What is inferred from this passage, what I believe it's really saying is that this was a normal practice of God that he was continually there in the garden with Adam and Eve, freely walking with them, talking to them, fellowshipping with them. That is incredible to me, but it makes perfect sense because that's the purpose for which God has created us, to have fellowship with them, pure, unhindered fellowship. It's an overwhelming thought to me, and I feel like uh, an author named Terence Fretheim, he says it best when he writes, the creator of the universe and all creatures chooses not to relate to the world at a distance, but takes on human form, goes for a walk among the creatures, and personally engages them regarding recent events. This has staggering implications for our understanding of the relationship between God and the first couple, where he graciously placed them in the wonderful garden where everything was provided for them. They were lacking nothing, but most of all, they were able to experience close, personal, intimate fellowship because the presence of God himself was there. But this fellowship with God is not meant to stay there. In fact, what does God command Adam and Eve to do in the garden? He says, Adam and Eve, I want you to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You are to subdue it and you're supposed to exercise dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. What is God saying in this moment? He's saying, this little sanctuary, this garden in the midst of Eden, this is what I want to be around the whole world. So I want you to have children. I want your children to have children. And I want you to spread out this incredible sanctuary of my presence across the entire world so that we will forever be able to have fellowship with one another. That's the thought that's being displayed here. This is the blueprint for God's creation, that God's presence would fill the world. In this first picture of how God relates to the human beings He's pictured not as this king that is so high and lofty above the earth, but as someone who is with his creation. One who is very much on earth in the garden with the people he created. John Walton says, the presence of God was the key to the garden. That's what walking with God was. Walking in the presence of God. That thought should stagger you. It's staggering to me. That's what walking in the garden was like. In your notes, you have this one little sentence. What was walking with God like in the garden? Walking with God in the garden was unhindered. It was physical, relational, continual, and personal. That's what it was supposed to be like. That's how God created us to have fellowship with him. Adam and Eve walked with God and completely experienced the fullness of joy and pleasures that never ceased because they were physically in the presence of God. 
But obviously, something has changed because that's not where we are right now. We're not in the Garden of Eden, unfortunately. Man, I would love to be there. Things are not perfect. We're not walking in the presence of God. So something changed. The process from the blueprint to final reality was interrupted with tragic consequences for the entire creation. You see, instead of expelling the serpent and protecting the garden, the sanctuary of the presence of God, Adam and Eve submitted themselves to the serpent, obeyed him instead of God, and because of that, they brought sin into the garden. The place where it was supposed to be free fellowship with God was now a place that had sin. And God then could not dwell in the garden because he cannot dwell in the presence of sin. And as they brought this sin in to the garden, God had to expel them out of the garden because this was no longer a place fit for him. And that jeopardized all of God's blueprint for the very ones that God meant to expand the dwelling of God around the entire earth are the very ones who are now excluded from his presence. So what does that mean? Does that mean that God's plan failed? That God is done? That God can't restore that fellowship with us anymore? That that's all finished? That is absolutely not true. Because in Genesis 3.15, God gives us a promise that one day there's coming a person whose heel will be bruised by the serpent, but he will crush the serpent's head. There's one day coming when the Savior will crush sin and restore fellowship with God. And that is the promise that they had being expelled from the garden. Yes, though disobedience and through that sin, uh, people had lost access in relationship to God and lost the eternal life that they had desired. But God and his grace is going to continue to work outside the garden until he brings them back into relationship with himself. And that's where we get to see the walk continue. So things changed. Sin came into the garden. God expelled them out of the garden, put cherubim up in front of the garden to guard it, guard the way back. And then from then on, people have been trying to get back. They experienced the fellowship with God. They said, we want this. We want that close, intimate, personal fellowship with God. We want that back. But they couldn't get back into the garden. The cherubim were guarding it. So they had to find some way to get there. They longed for it. It's a very interesting thing. I remember back uh, before I married my wife, Ashley, uh, I came across a guy that we went to school together with. His name was Michael. Uh, He was a youth pastor down in Anaheim. I was a youth pastor in Carson. Uh, We are both single guys. We both lived somewhat on our own, and we both were craving some kind of a friendship. So we came together, we hung out together, and then every Monday night, I would leave Carson, drive down to Anaheim. We'd hang out at his house, uh, we'd try out a new craft beer. We'd talk about theology and listen to Jack Johnson. That was our normal Monday night. It was awesome. Then we'd, I would crash at his place. The morning after, we'd wake up, we'd go work out, and then I would head back home to go to work. It was amazing. I did this for years. I had this close relationship with Michael, and it was amazing. Then when my wife and I got married, something shifted in that relationship. I chose my wife, and I wanted to spend time with her, and Of course I should. Uh, That was the new focus of my attention. It wasn't that I was excluding Michael, but somehow something shifted in our relationship and it broke. 
and we could no longer spend time together. And I couldn't figure out why. And I kept trying to find a way to get back into that friendship because I, I loved it so much. So I would go to his house and he wouldn't be there. I'd go to his work and we'd talk, but things were just not the same. Something had shifted in that relationship. But in my heart, I kept longing for it to come back to that same way that we had it before. Sure, we wouldn't be able to hang out and crash uh, at his pad on a Monday night, but I still wanted that friendship. I longed for it. That's what is similar to what's taking place here. Adam and Eve and and their, their children, they longed for the presence of God. Something had shifted in that relationship and they craved it. They wanted it back. So they kept trying to find a way back, but they couldn't. You see, from that moment in time, instead of this horizontal fellowship walking with God, it shifted. And all of a sudden, now God is up in heaven. And now the vertical relationship is in place. It used to be horizontal, and now it's vertical. And now we get pictures like we have in Genesis 28, where God is seated in heaven, and there's a ladder from heaven down to earth, and his angels are ascending and descending. And that's how he starts to relate to the humankind in a vertical relationship. It's very distant. It's not close. In fact, from that moment on, what you'll see is that God does come, but he comes in very brief moments. He'll come and and spend time with a person or an individual, but it'll be a very short time and very temporary. They would meet with God. They would build an altar. They would sacrifice. They would say, God, this is amazing. We want to stay here forever. And then God would leave. Every moment that they had with God was very short-lived and very temporary. In fact, that's what walking with God was like after the fall. It's very brief, temporary, and vertical. They wanted this relationship back with God, but they couldn't because every moment with him was so short. And every time that God would come, it was like this accompanying presence. It wasn't that they were close with God anymore. It's that he was kind of accompanying them in life, but they longed for something more. They ached for something greater. It's kind of like when you're only able to have one Lay's potato chip, just one. It's like it whets your appetite and you want more and you just can't because there's, there's just one. There's this one moment with God and they just kept craving for more of it. They had tasted the fullness of joy in the presence of God and they longed to have it back. There's more than this and I want it. God was going to find a way to bring that closer, to come closer to us because we couldn't get closer to him. People kept longing for God. And maybe that's true of many people in this world. Maybe it's true of you today that you have been wandering outside of the life of God, that you may have encountered him in some way and you're feeling this longing, this desire. There's something more that I need in my life. I need something greater. It's the promise of God because there is fullness of joy in the presence of God in walking with him both now and forever. What Israel needed, what the people of Israel needed and what humans needed was for God to take up permanent residency in their midst. And this is what he begins to do. He begins to walk with God through the tabernacle. Now, this is a very important time frame, and I don't want to take a whole lot of time. I don't want to really emphasize this. God continues to move closer to the people he created, and instead of creating these brief temporary visits he made before, his presence now becomes even more visible and more continual. 
as the nation of Israel left bondage in Egypt and started to move toward the promised land, it says that God led his people by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Every single person in the nation, three million plus, could see this giant pillar of cloud or giant pillar of fire. Do you know what was special about that, though? God was in that cloud. God was in those pillars. His presence was right there with them all the time, 24 hours a day. They could see his presence. That's what they were starting to to long for, that, that God would come back. God, we're craving you. Come back to us. And all of a sudden, God is back. But he's still distant. He's in the pillar of cloud. He's in the pillar of fire, both unapproachable. You couldn't get close to him. But he was there. And then God takes a step closer and he tells, tells Moses, Moses, I want you to collect a free will offering because I want you to build a tabernacle for me. Why? He says this in Exodus chapter 25, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. That's a remarkable statement because that's what happened in the garden. God was dwelling in their midst. But then when God banished them out, that longing kept coming in for him to return. And that's exactly what happened. The sanctuary was built, the tabernacle was built, and when it was done, that pillar of cloud came and it dropped down on the tabernacle. And it said that the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. His presence was now in their midst. This is amazing to me because these are the people that had sinned against God. These are people that were sinful. These are people that God had banished from the garden because of their sin. And yet God is coming to dwell with them continually and visibly. But I want you to see something here. Even though God's presence was with them continually and visibly, it was also very conditionally there. Walking with God through the tabernacle was continual and visible, but conditional. This was the Lord's house, and because he was there, it was holy. So access to him was very restricted. You couldn't get in there. The closer you got to the middle of the temple, the fewer people had access. All of the people of Israel had access to the courtyard area of the tabernacle but only the priests could go into the temple, the holy place. But in the holy of holies where God dwelled, only one person could go one time a year and was a high priest and only after incredibly intense cleansing, he was able to go in and only to offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. So yes, God was present. Yes, God was dwelling in the midst of his people, but fellowship with him was not freely accessible, which points to a powerful truth. The tabernacle was not meant to be the place where God dwelt in the earth. That's just a a snapshot, a stepping stone. God wanted to dwell in the entire earth. His presence needs to fill the entire world not just the tabernacle. So it was pointing forward, telling them that God's glorious presence would fill the whole earth. It would fill the entire universe. So the people were excited. They were overwhelmed. They were humbled. 
because God was now in their midst. But still they were longing for more. They ached for God's presence to be fully and continually realized because they knew that in his presence there was fullness of joy and that walking with him would give them pleasures forevermore because there is fullness of joy in walking with God both now and forever. So eventually Solomon would build this temple and the same glory would fill the temple and the people would see God's presence in the temple. But just like this, and just like they had done throughout all of history up until this moment, he was there and they started to move further and further and further away from God's presence. And they walked further away from him And eventually, God rejected them again, sent them away into captivity, into exile, and his glory would not come back to the temple in the same way. So the Old Testament ends with the people longing for the presence of God, and it wasn't there. And they waited 400 years desiring the presence of God, and then something happened. The most incredible thing happens. God comes closer so much closer, more personally. He comes more continually. He comes humanly. God comes to this earth. And we get to experience walking with God, with Jesus. Walking with God, with Jesus. This is how the the Apostle John uh, starts off his gospel. And it is phenomenal. You've got to hear this. John says this. In the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God. And the word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him and nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created and the life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. So the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. He became human and dwelt among us, tabernacled with us. And it goes even better because John, after he has time to think about this more, he writes in his letter, 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, say, one through three says, we proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. This one who is life itself was revealed to us and we have seen him. And now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the Father, and then he was revealed to us. And here's where it gets great. We proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard. Why? Why? So that we can have fellowship with the Father, with the Son, Jesus Christ. He came so that we could be restored to that fellowship with God. This is an incredible truth. There it is, all the types, all the shadows, all the stepping stones were pointing to this. This is what God had in mind from the beginning. This is what we are longing for, this authentic, personal, intimate connection with God. And it's come personally, and it's come physically in Jesus, who is Emmanuel, who is God with us. At last, this fiery, glorious presence of God barely glimpsed by Moses, hidden in the tabernacle, 
has now become human, and we get to see it face to face. Isaiah verse 45, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see the salvation of God. John makes it clear that God's glorious presence is now revealed in Jesus Christ, his son, and we get to see this. In the life of Jesus, they saw his power displayed along with his joy when at the first wedding he went to, the wedding at Cana, he was celebrating with the bride and groom. They ran out of of wine and he turned water into wine. They got to see his power and his joy. But it goes on beyond that. They saw him take five loaves of bread and two fish and feed thousands of people. They saw him heal women, men, and children with a single word. They saw him exert power over wind and waves. They saw him walk on water. They saw him raise people from the dead. They heard him say, I am who I am. They heard him say, I and the Father are one. They got to see Jesus, the glory of God displayed on this earth. Authority over all things powers, dominions, rulers, demons, spiritually elite, everyone. And then on this day, Palm Sunday, thousands of years ago, Jesus comes marching into Jerusalem to the shouts and screams and joy of all of Israel as they threw their clothes and palm branches down saying, Hosanna, save now, glory to God. He has come. The one we've been waiting for has come. We've been rescued. The moment that we've been waiting for is here. Glory, healing, life, provision, resurrection, all signposts of God's presence. These point far beyond Jesus' power to something greater, that God's presence was here with us in the person of Jesus. You see, in the person of, of Christ, people were able to visibly see and experience truly that there is fullness of joy and pleasures forever in the presence of God, in fellowship with God, in walking with God. And as the people that were there, they dimly discovered God's presence had come to dwell among them in nearly the same way it was at the beginning, walking with them physically on the earth continually. And that's what walking with Jesus was. Walking with Jesus was personal, continual, and physical but it was also limited. It was personal and it was physical, but it was continual and it's limited because Jesus could only be in one place at one time and a little bit more, even though that we could see Jesus, talk with Jesus, walk with Jesus, watch Jesus, there's still something that was hindering us in our relationship with Jesus, and that was our sin. There's still the problem of sin. There's still something that's separating us from God, which is why God took another step closer we see walking with God now takes another darker step. We see what walking with God looks like because of the cross. Though humankind was once again able to fellowship with God face to face, walking side by side, it was limited. From the very beginning, sin sabotaged our relationship with God, our ability to have perfect personal fellowship with him. And at each step along the way, you'll see that the same thing happens. Sin sabotages the relationship with God over and over again. No matter how close we get, we still keep pushing God away because of our sin. Habakkuk 
1.13 says, Your eyes are too pure to behold evil. You cannot look on wrongdoing. I love the children's book, uh, The Garden, the Curtain, and the Cross. Uh, I would wish that I had brought it with me and left it sitting on our kitchen table. That's a picture of it. It's a great way to explain this concept with the kids. In this book, uh, the author says this so well. He captures the idea of saying that God set up the cherubim as this keep-out sign. You can't go back in. And then there's a curtain in the temple and the tabernacle as God's keep-out sign. You can't go in because of our sin. We can't go in. Because of our sin, we can't go in. Regardless of how small the sin is, the chasm that it creates is too large. We can never make it back. No matter how good our deeds are, no matter how many sacrifices we offer, no matter how many prayers we pray, no matter how many times we go to church, it will never be enough because the chasm is too great and this God knew. But God would make a way to restore that personal, perfect fellowship with him in the most dramatic way by taking that judgment upon himself. Here's something that's really interesting. Judgment, divine judgment is pictured in the Bible as absence from the presence of God. Divine judgment in the Bible is pictured as absence from the presence of God. And this presence-crushing judgment is what falls on Jesus Christ on the cross. It comes to its climax We capture it in Matthew chapter 27 where he says, Jesus says this on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's already been abandoned by his followers. He's been abandoned by the spiritual leaders. He's been abandoned by the people, been abandoned by the executioners, been abandoned by even the people that are next to him. He's been abandoned by everyone. And on the cross, Jesus takes all of our sin, all those things that kept pushing God away from us, kept him at arm's length or farther so that we could never have that close personal relationship with him. All of that sin was put on Jesus and he died for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Christ became a curse for us. And in that moment, this is mind-blowing to me. In that moment, the unbroken relationship between Jesus the Son and God the Father was broken. I don't understand how that could be. But in that very moment, the relationship that we had with God that was broken was now restored. And the curtain that was keeping us out of the presence of God was torn from top to bottom and ripped open and no longer separating us from the presence of God. And we can go in. As the children's book goes on to say, God wanted us to be with him. He wanted us to be with him. But because of our sin, we could not go in. But Jesus died on the cross to take our sin so his friends can now come in. See, on the cross, Jesus was despised so that we could be prized. Jesus was abandoned so that we could be accepted. Jesus was forsaken so that we could be forgiven. Jesus was expelled so that we could be brought in to the presence of God. Jesus was put to death so that we could be brought to life. This is what Jesus has done to 
bring us back into fellowship with God. This is why Paul says this in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we've been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand. And we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right with God in his sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. Listen to this. So now we can rejoice in the wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends with God. This is amazing. That relationship that was broken in the garden, that we long for step after step, year after year, century after century, millennia after millennia, we had been longing for this relationship with God and it is finally here, opened up to us because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. So when we take this bread and this juice, it is not just a wafer. It is not just juice. It is not just a picture. It is what symbolizes that we can now have that fellowship with God that was broken so long ago. And that's what I want for us to take part of today. As we think, as we think through our sin and all that it meant and how God has come to us, how he's restored us, it should fill us with joy that once we are far off and now we've been brought near, once we were enemies, now we are friends. Once we were abandoned, forgotten, rejected, now we are brought near and called sons and daughters. So when we take this wafer, what we're saying is this, our lives were broken because of sin. We had no hope of being restored. But Jesus, he was broken on our behalf so that we could be restored to fellowship with God. Would you join me and let's take this together, remembering that restoration. Inside of this, this is the sacrifice. This is what Jesus did to open up the way. He took all of God's wrath upon himself. He died in our place so that we could experience fullness of joy in the presence of God. His death means our life. Would you join me in drinking this together? What is very interesting as you're doing this. Mark says that when Jesus passed the cup around to his disciples, he said, this is the cup, this is the new covenant in my blood. I will not drink this again with you until I'm together with you in the kingdom and I'll drink it new. Jesus was pointing to the end and he was saying that something is coming. There's something coming and it's gonna be incredible. You see, 
salvation, the cross, that's not the end. This whole life is not just leading to the cross. The cross is what restores the fellowship with God. It is a means to the end. That's not the focal point. The focal point is fellowship with God. That's why he created us. That's what he wants for us. It is not that we are just saved from our sins, saved from hell. We are saved to a relationship with God. And that is the means to get us to the end. And God has something so much greater for us in store in the future. And this is where the, the story is going to end. We get to walk with God in eternity. Walking with God in eternity. It's going to be incredible. When Jesus was with his disciples, John 13, uh, he was telling them, he says, I'm going to go, and where I'm going, you cannot go with me, but you will soon follow. And his disciples are, what in the world are you talking about? Jesus, where are you going to go that we can't follow? He says in John 14, verses 1 through 3, he gives us a little explanation and an incredible promise. And he says this uh, in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Do I have it up on the screen? In my father's house. Let's, let's, let me try to get my thoughts right. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, surely I will come again to receive you to myself. Why? So that you will always be with me where I am, so that you will always be with me where I am. We see things so incomplete, and one day we're going to see it clearly. This is the most incredible thing to me. We are not just going to be living in a place. We are going to be with a person. The presence of Christ and the fellowship with God, the Father, is what makes heaven, heaven. We're going to be free from sin. We'll get to see God in all of his glory, unveiled in all of his fullness. There's nothing more pleasing, more satisfying. David says, uh, after all that he'd experienced in his life, he knew everything from being a shepherd boy to being a warrior to being a king. He tasted every single pleasure there was in this world. And he says this in Psalm 17, because I'm righteous, I will see you when I awake. I will see you face to face and be satisfied. What satisfies us? Do new clothes satisfy us? Do a, a new car or a new house or a new job or new promotion or a new friend or a new relationship? What is it that satisfies us? David says, I've experienced it all and nothing satisfies me like Jesus, like God. I want to see him face to face to face, walking with God in heaven. That's what it's all about. That's where our hearts are. That is where fullness of joy is. That's where pleasures are forevermore. Their walking with God will be personal, physical, relational, and eternal. Without question, the most amazing thing in heaven is going to be God. When you get to Revelations chapter 21 and 22, you get this picture of the great city of Jerusalem coming from heaven down to this earth. And the most incredible statement is being made in Revelation 21 verse 3. It says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them 
as their God. Friends, the end for which God created this world is coming. When God created this world, he wanted his glory to fill the earth, to go from sea to sea. He wanted to cover every square inch of this world. Sin sabotaged that at the beginning, but one day God is setting it up to where he is coming and he is going to set up his kingdom and we will get to enjoy his presence forevermore, free, unrestricted, unhindered, personal, continual, satisfying, eternal presence of God face-to-face, person-to-person, without question, the most marvelous thing about heaven will be the unbroken fellowship with God. The most incredible thought for me is that the God of the universe, the one who created all of these things, the one who created the things we see, the one who created things we can't see, He needs nothing, and yet he desires to have fellowship with me. The one who dwells in unapproachable light wants to have a relationship with me. I don't know how to fully comprehend that thought, and yet it's what's laid out for me through all the pages of Scripture, from the very beginning to the very end. And even though that walk that we have now was broken at the beginning. It was restored because of Christ. And one day will lead us to where we were with him in heaven forever. Let me say it this way. God's plan was never foiled. God always wanted us to spend time with him. So he continued to walk towards us until in Christ he could walk with us so that in heaven we will never walk without him ever again. If I were to end with just one thing, it would be this question. Where are you in your walk? Where are you in your walk with God? Are you walking without him? Where you don't have a relationship with him, you don't know him, you've never experienced that with him? Inside of your heart, there's this deep longing that can only be satisfied by God himself. Maybe you do know him, but you have been walking away from him. You've been thinking that something else in this world will satisfy you, and it will not, because only God can satisfy the deepest longing of your heart. Maybe you're walking away from him. Maybe you're walking towards God. You know that he's there, but you're just not sure yet. You're still trying to evaluate, is it worth the cost to give your life to him? And I would say absolutely, because there is fullness of joy in walking with God both now and forever. If you are without him, there's fullness of joy in walking with God both now and forever. But maybe you are here today and you are walking with God. But maybe in your walk with God, things are a little bit more challenging. Maybe like in the Pilgrim's Progress, you're going through different places in your walk. Maybe you're going through the valley of the shadow of death where you're experiencing so much sorrow. God says there's fullness of joy in walking with me both now and forever. In the most deep sorrow that you have, reach out for God who is the fullness of joy and you'll find your heart satisfied. Maybe you are in 
doubting castle and you're doubting whether or not all this is true, you need to come to the truth and hold tightly to the fact that walking with God, there's pleasures forevermore. And in his presence, there's fullness of joy. Maybe you are in the dungeon of despair, overwhelmed, discouraged, depressed. I want you to know that walking with God brings fullness of joy. And in his presence is fullness of joy. And in his right hand is pleasure forevermore. Maybe you are distracted by vanity fair, thinking that something else is going to satisfy you. Come back to the truth that walking with God brings fullness of joy. Wherever you are in your walk, may you know that there's nothing greater, nothing greater than walking with God because there is fullness of joy in walking with God both now and forever. Would you stand? We're going to sing because this is something that we need to sing about.